0: I was coaching baseball in Arkansas, they had this rule that if a team was ahead by 15 runs or more after three innings, the game was over. If a team was ahead by 10 runs or more after five innings, the game was over. When I moved to Missouri, they had a similar rule for football. If a team was ahead by 35 points or more, the clock ran continuously. Same in basketball. If a team was up by 30 points or more, the clock ran without stopping. You know what we call these rules? Mercy rule. When you look at Matthew chapter 5 verse 7, Jesus gives us a mercy rule. He said, blessed are the merciful for they shall receive mercy. So is Jesus saying, blessed are those who are so successful and so dominant that they allow the other team to surrender? Obviously, Jesus' mercy rule is quite different than the mercy rules I mentioned a moment ago. Turn with me, if you would, to Matthew chapter 9. And in Matthew chapter 9, beginning in verse 9, here's what it says. As Jesus passed on from there, He saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at the table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. This section of Matthew gives us some insight into Matthew's beginning as a disciple, as told by Matthew. And Matthew sums up his life like this I was a tax collector. Perfect summation of his life before Jesus. And by now you've sat through enough Bible classes and enough sermons of mine to know that tax collectors weren't highly esteemed in Jesus' day. Tax collectors were the dregs of society. They were not respected. A tax collector was not allowed to give testimony in a trial. A tax collector was not allowed to worship in the synagogue. A tax collector was the lowliest of low people. Now, What we know about tax collectors is that they were not Roman, they were Jewish. And so a Jew was considered the Benedict Arnold of his day if he was a tax collector. He was considered a traitor, right? He had no value in society. A tax collector was commissioned by Rome to go and collect taxes from the people. Now we know something about this because we pay taxes and we're not real fond of the IRS. But our interaction is very impersonal, right? Because our taxes are taken out of our paycheck. We don't really interact with a person. Not so in Jesus' day and time. A Jew who was also a tax collector would go door to door and collect the taxes. And as we've talked about before, the tax was set by the Roman government. But the Jew who was collecting the tax as a tax collector could collect anything above whatever Rome had set for the tax. And as you can imagine, this led to gross abuse no one really knew what Rome had set as the tax. And so there was great exploitation and many tax collectors were getting rich off the backs of their neighbors. And again, this caused a lot of animosity. I want you to consider that we are invaded and we're taken over by Russia. And so now we don't pay taxes to the U.S. government anymore. We pay taxes to the Russians. But Russia commissions U.S. citizens to take up uh, the taxes and to go door-to-door to to do so. What if it was your next-door neighbor who was coming to your door asking or demanding the tax? That would make you think of that neighbor a little differently, wouldn't it? And that's kind of what's going on here in the first century. A Jew, one of their own, would come door-to-door and demand payment. And you can see how this led to many people thinking that tax collectors were greedy, corrupt, And not very well liked. Of course, we may look at Matthew's situation and maybe propose some excuses for him. Maybe maybe Matthew had to be the breadwinner for his family. Maybe his father died and so he felt like the only way to support his family was to go out and be a tax collector. I don't know, maybe I'm giving him too much credit whatever the reason, even if Matthew was just a greedy tax collector like everyone else in that day and age, even if he was someone who was a traitor and all those things that I mentioned, even if he was corrupt, even if he had no compassion for the people, really doesn't matter. Because Jesus shows up and he doesn't immediately start raking Matthew over the coals. Instead, he says, come and follow me. Because Jesus saw a tree and not a seedling. Now, granted, Jesus had foresight that we don't have, but all too often human beings operate much like the Pharisees in that we only see what is presented, tax collector, sinner, greedy, corrupt, whatever. And rightfully so to some degree, what else are we supposed to see, right? I mean, people oftentimes are what they do. At least that's how we perceive them. And so if that's what we see, we form conclusions that are probably pretty accurate. But like the Pharisees, many times we as humans look around and we only see worthless, no good, no value. Jesus came along and he looked beyond the exterior and he saw someone who had something to contribute. Jesus didn't zero in on what he was or what he had done. He looked at Matthew and he saw a tree, not a seedling. He saw something that he could use. And just as important, Matthew saw something in Jesus that could make him useful. He wasn't used to that. The religious leaders of the day should have been seeing the tree and not the seed. But they had no use for Matthew or the Matthews of the world. When the scribes and the Pharisees saw Jesus hanging out with tax collectors and the dregs of society, they were appalled It would have been one thing if Jesus came along and started scolding people like Matthew. They could have gone along with that, but instead he hung out with these people. And in the eyes of the religious elite, this was uncalled for. The fact that Jesus cared for these lowlifes was deemed atrocious behavior by the religious elite. And that prompts a question. Verse 11, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? You would think that religious people would know the answer to that. But truthfully, their question was right in line with their theology. They firmly believed that God had no use for people like Matthew, and therefore they had no use for him either. Which should make us all stop and think. Because what we think about God will directly affect how we see other people. The problem, as the religious leaders saw it, was the way in which Jesus viewed Matthew. But that wasn't the real problem. The problem was how the religious leaders viewed God. Of all people, the religious leaders should have been the ones who saw people like Matthew as a tree rather than a seedling. They should have been the ones who came to the aid of those who were in need. But they missed their opportunity because they were too busy looking at rules and not people. Jesus came for those who were ailing spiritually because he couldn't count on the religious people to do so. That's what the Pharisees and scribes failed to understand, and that's what we all need to grasp. We're not here because we're well. We're here because we're sick. We're here because we all need forgiveness. We're here because we all need mercy. We all need a physician, and may we never start to think that we're any better than anyone else. God forbid that we ever take on an elitist attitude that looks down our noses at people who are in need and who are suffering and ailing with sin. We all have struggles. We all have needs. And if you don't, then please don't flaunt your flawlessness. Instead, dig in and help those who are not flawless. Because here's the deal. There are people sitting in our auditorium right here who don't want to go home tonight after worship. There are people sitting in this auditorium every Sunday who will go home to an empty house and they'll sit at an empty table and eat their supper and they'll go to an empty bed to go to sleep. There are people right here in this church who have a struggling marriage. And maybe they even had a fight on the way to church. And they walk in these doors and they put on a happy face and people come up to them and they say, how you doing? Oh, we're doing great. When in reality, they're falling apart. There are people right here in this auditorium this evening who are struggling with physical and emotional pain. And what they need above all else is someone to show them love and mercy. Someone who recognizes their need. Someone who, like we talked about this morning, gets right inside of them and sees things with their eyes and thinks things with their mind and feels things with their feelings. We are not here tonight because we have it all together. No, quite the opposite. We're here because we realize just how much we need God and how much we need other people. We gather with a group of hurting people so that we can draw near to Jesus and draw near to one another. Let me ask you the question, what does God want? What does he want? I mean, we could probably provide quite a few answers to that question, But he says right here in Hosea chapter 6 and verse 6, For I desire mercy, not sacrifice. So we know beyond the shadow of a doubt at least one thing that he wants. He wants mercy. He wants his people to be merciful. Jesus references this statement in what we just read a moment ago, right? He tells the religious elite, you need to go back and study the scriptures. Now these were learned men, make no mistake. They knew the scriptures. But they weren't reading them correctly. When God says, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, the Pharisees and the scribes were very learned men. That wasn't the problem. The problem was the way that they were reading and applying Scripture They had this very legalistic view that saw rules and not people. And Jesus came to this earth to demonstrate what God is like. Jesus shows them how to handle situations. And how would God handle this particular situation? How would he deal with tax collectors and sinners? What's his take? And Jesus shows us. If Jesus came to show us what God is like, then it cannot be denied that God is a God of mercy-based on the actions and attitude of His Son. Because here's the deal, a solid theology of God is built on the foundation of mercy. And once we grasp that, it changes the way that we view people. It changes the way that we read Scripture. Because here's the deal, we tend to view people by assessing how different we are from them rather than noticing how much we're alike. And the fact of the matter is, we all need mercy. We're all alike in that. We have all benefited from the mercy of God. So when we look at other people, especially here in the church, we're not looking at skin color, we're not looking at socioeconomic status, we're not looking at any of those things. We're looking at people who need mercy just as much as we do this righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There is no difference, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. We may have different views we may be vastly different in a lot of different ways but none of those differences make any difference in the fact that we are all sinners and now we are all in Christ we were once dead in our trespasses now we are alive in Christ we all share the same spiritual DNA and it doesn't matter what we once were doesn't matter what we once did doesn't matter what our ethnicity is our social status whether we're rich or poor whether we're educated or dumb as a door handle what matters is that we are heaven bound, all because God is a God of mercy. Jesus was criticized for being friends with people that no one else wanted to be around. What was intended to be a criticism was the greatest compliment. Don't you want to be a friend to sinners? I hope so. Don't you want to be like Jesus? That's our example. That's the way that we are to live our lives because mercy will always change the way that you see people. When I was a junior in high school, I quit sports completely, which was kind of a shock to my parents because I had played sports from the time I was five years old. I was even on a bowling team when I was a kid. I did everything that was related to sports, but my parents had just gotten divorced And I had pretty much given up on everything. And so I walked in and told the coach right before two-a-days got started that I I wanted to quit. And there was no tears shed. It wasn't like I was going to contribute anything. And at first I was relieved. The stress was I didn't have to worry about practicing and all that. But it didn't take long. Actually, the first game that I started to miss it. I started to miss being out there with my friends. I started to miss the, the camaraderie. All the things associated with it, not just playing. And so as soon as the season was over, I went to coach and I said, I'd like to come back. And surprisingly, he didn't say no. I mean, again, it it wasn't like he needed me. He very easily could have said, you know what, I can give your jersey to somebody else. And, you know, I can't really count on you. You're a little wishy-washy. But he didn't do that. He said, well, he said, Chris, I'm going to talk to the team. And if they vote you back, you can come back. Well, I mean, they were friends of mine, so what are they going to do? I mean, they voted me back. So I came back. And if it wasn't for Coach Shelby, I would not be the man that I am today. Because that man could have given up on me. He could have let me back on the team and let me stand there and occupy a space on the sideline but he put his arm around me and he coached me along and he saw something in me that I didn't even see in myself. I guess he knew the situation at home. I guess he probably was trying to, you know, to love on me when I needed it. Come to find out later, he had had a similar lot in life, highly recruited to play football. His parents were dirt poor. He had grown up in a tough situation Maybe he saw something in me that he could use. Maybe he saw a tree instead of a seedling. I don't know. But one thing that I do know is that he helped me tremendously to cope at a time in my life that was very difficult. And I was not a really good football player by any means, but he saw something in me that he could use. You know, when we read the story of Matthew, the obvious question is, what did Jesus see in Matthew? At least that's the obvious question to me. What was it about Matthew that made Jesus take a chance on a lowly tax collector? It makes you wonder that, that you know, what, what was it? What, what was in Matthew that made Jesus perk up and say, I can use that guy? Must have been something. Must have been something about Matthew that Jesus saw. Maybe the better question is, what did Matthew see in Jesus? What was it about Jesus that prompted Matthew to drop everything, a lucrative career, and follow him? I I think Matthew saw someone who cared about his future more than he did his past. I think Matthew saw someone who was willing to help him solve problems rather than complain about a problem. I think Matthew saw someone whose heart was filled with mercy. He saw someone who was obviously spiritual, who actually cared about his spiritual welfare. He hadn't seen that before, at least not from the people that should have been showing it, right? I know a man about my age that is a fine man, but he swears he will never enter into a church of Christ. I've invited him. He says, I'm sure Oldham Lane's a great place, but I will never step foot in a church of Christ. You know why? Because when he was small, his mother and father got a divorce. His mother took him to church the next Sunday, and he was greeted at the door. His mother was told that you can't come back here. You're not welcome because you had a divorce. I know of a young lady who's now older, but for many years stayed away from the church because she came one time and she was denied communion and told that she would go to hell if she didn't leave the church she was currently attending. I wish those weren't true. Maybe you have some stories you can share like that. I think they are extreme. I don't think that they represent us as a whole. I certainly don't think that they represent us here at Oldham Lane. But you know what, we can be about a lot of things. But first and foremost, we'd better be about love and mercy. Because, you know, there are some things that I read about in this Bible that are really tough. There are some things that are really hard to discern. You know what? I'm going to err on the side of love every time. When I have difficulty in discerning something or or applying something to a particular situation, I'm going to err on the side of love every time. Because I'm supposed to be about love. Love reigns supreme. That's my identifying mark as a disciple. So when it comes to... Discerning certain situations that are difficult, I'm going to err on the side of love. The question we need to ask ourselves is, do the Matthews of the world want to hang around us? And if not, why not? Matthew's story is our story. The great physician came to make us well. He has shown us mercy, and so we follow. Remember what Peter said? Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. I mean, mercy is at the heart of our story, and therefore it should be the core of our being. You have received mercy, so now what? Well, you show mercy. You are to be merciful. It's really that simple. That means that When you're zooming down, you know, the loop, maybe coming around 83, 84, and and that person's coming in off a treadway and trying to merge, and they're not yielding, and all you got to do is move over to the other lane, and you're like me, and you go, "Uh uh-uh, you should have yielded. That means you let them in, right? Even though you don't want to, you show mercy because that's what God did. He let you in. More than letting you merge, He let you in. You show mercy because you have received mercy. We didn't deserve it either, but he did it. Obviously, I'm talking about something great here, something much bigger than our mundane things that go on day to day. This is about higher math. It's a mathematical equation. Pity plus action equals mercy. It's not enough to look at someone with sorrowful eyes. It's not enough to say, I'll pray for you when you can meet their need. It's not enough to say, I'm sorry when you can meet their need. Pity plus action equals mercy. Mercy is about trading places like we talked about this morning with that very rich Hebrew word kased, untranslatable in the English language. It means to get inside of another person, to see things with their eyes, to feel things with their feelings, to think things with their minds. I experience it with them and therefore I act and I will do my part to lighten their load, to lessen their burden, to ease their pain because I have identified with them. I have come to see and feel their great need and I am compelled to help. The proof of mercy is found in the response. Jesus met our greatest need. He met us in our misery and he did something about it. God didn't just look down from heaven and say, I hope you make it, I hope you come through this. No, he met our greatest need. He met us in our misery by sending his son, the greatest act of mercy and that pity and that compassion that he had upon us moved, us, moved him to action because just feeling sorry for someone doesn't do the trick. No, in the greatest act of mercy, Jesus did what we could not do for ourselves. He laid down his life. And so the question becomes, how are you showing mercy? Look, I get it. There are commands that we are to follow, and the Bible is very clear. Jesus said, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. But if you're only focusing on the rules and have no mercy or compassion, you're doing it wrong. If your religion or your theology is such that you start by beating people over the head with a Bible, you're doing it wrong. Because most people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. Maybe we don't like the idea, but truth is usually not at the top of their priority list. But they may listen to truth when they know someone loves and cares about them. You ever walk into like a thrift store and there's a rack of clothing and there's a sign that says, as is. You know what that means? It means that there's some sort of flaw in the clothing that's hanging on that rack. So if you are to buy this, you're buying it as is. Which means when you get at home and you find the flaw, whether it's a tear or a rip or a hole or a stain, don't come back whining. Don't come back asking for a refund or a return. You bought it as is. That's the rule. The good news of the gospel is that the God of the universe, the one we worship, the one who reigns supreme, looks at us, he looks at our souls, and he says, I'll take it. I'll take it as is. I'll take it as is. He knew we were stained with sin. He knew we were ripped apart by sin. He knew we were flawed, but he paid the price anyway. Our Heavenly Father looks at us, and he doesn't see an as-is sign hanging around our necks. He doesn't see a seed. He sees a tree. We should find great encouragement in the fact that when Jesus looked at Matthew, he didn't see a tax collector. He saw a disciple. He saw a disciple that would one day take a pen and write down the story of his life and the story of Jesus' life. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, what a blessing it is to know you to be close to you. May we all be leaders and followers. May we all lead the way as we shine our light in the world and lead others to Christ. And may we always be followers of you. It's in your son's precious name we pray. Amen. Here's the invitation. Jesus said, I didn't come to call the righteous but sinners. My friends, all you have to do to be a part of what God is doing is stop pretending that you don't have a problem. We all have a problem, right? We all have a sin problem. Some of you have done something about that. Maybe many years ago, you did something about that. And you revel in the glory of Jesus Christ because you're washed in His blood. Some of you may not have done that, but you need to. If we're going to pray, Lord, come quickly, we need to be ready when he does come. So what do you need to do to get ready? Let us help you tonight. Why don't you come as we stand and as we sing?